Welcome to hour two six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. If you missed my monologue in the first hour, I would categorize it as one of the ten or fifteen most important ones I've given. You can always access it at nine sixty thepatriot.com or website nine sixty thepatriot.com. I ran into this article here by Vivek Ramaswamy. He's a candidate for president in the Republican uh, Party, and um, I want to read it to you. It's really good. I don't. He doesn't have my support for the presidency, and I don't quite think he's qualified for the presidency of the United States. And yet, he says some important, monumentally important things that a lot of others aren't saying him or saying as well as he has. It had me thinking over the break for a few moments about failed presidential candidates whose contribution in their candidacy still changed the debate of the political culture in America. There's not a lot of examples of it that I came up with. I'd be curious if you can think of others. One immediately thinks of Steve Forbes and his 1996 race, uh, primary race, putting the issue of the flat tax back into huge popularity, having it uh, been uh, taken out of the catacombs of a few Stanford economists uh, <laughs> archives and bringing back uh, this notion of the flat tax, uh, which is, you know, thanks to Steve Forbes and his 96 candidacy probably wouldn't be spoken of as much or the way it is spoken of now. Uh, Al Gore, perhaps, maybe man who never became, thank God, president of the United States and his uh, his his books and movies on the environment perhaps changed the political culture, I was going to say climate, I won't do that to you, um, or at least political rhetoric in America. Um, Barry Goldwater's race, perhaps in 64, injected the notion that uh, conservatism could be a governing philosophy on a national stage. They both won their primaries. Forbes didn't. I don't think uh, Ramaswamy will either. But maybe what he stands for can change political discourse or dialogue in America, or at least give attention to something that's not given enough attention. He writes, the USA is experiencing a crisis of faith in itself. He writes, I'm the first millennial Republican to run for U.S. president. If you ask most people my age what it means to be an American today, you get a blank stare in response. Faith, patriotism, family, and hard work are all disappearing we talked about this a lot yesterday. A recent Wall Street Journal survey reveals that young people in particular are responsible for driving this trend. Fifty-nine percent of Americans age 65 and older say that patriotism is important, very important to them, but only 23, compared with only 23 percent of adults under the age of 30. The survey observed a similar gap with respect to interest in religion, hard work, and having children. This is sad but unsurprising. I told you my reasons for why this happened yesterday, but let me uh, quote you some more from what uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is writing. Our nation's higher education institutions reliably sing their American bashing chorus. Recently, Stanford University deemed the term American to be harmful language. Do you remember that? They sure did. Even more disturbingly, the America is bad ilk has slinked its way into our elementary schools under the auspices of equity and social justice. Students in classrooms across America today are taught to apologize for our country's history rather than to be proud of it. Critical race theory and gender theory pervade K-12 education where children are taught to identify themselves as members of an oppressor or oppressed category based on their skin color and sexual preferences. 
Public schools endlessly celebrate diversity as our strength without reminding students of what binds us together as one people. This explains why the U.S. military experiences a staggering and unprecedented 25 percent enrollment deficit. Young people will not make sacrifices to protect a nation they simply don't believe in. The woke left preys on this vacuum, this vacuum of identity. The new secular cults of wokeism, gender ideology, covidism, and climatism prey on this vacuum of purpose and meaning. Blaise Pascal famously said that if you have a hole the size of God in your heart and God doesn't fill it, something else will. Our inner animal spirit has been domesticated by a new culture that celebrates victimhood and penalizes excellence. That inner spirit has leapt oceans to lift up places like China, while their their culture of one-time Maoist victimhood has leapt oceans in the other direction to hold us down. When we rallied behind the cry to make America great again, we did not just hunger for a single man. We hungered for the unapologetic pursuit of excellence itself. That is the essence of what it means to be an American. America faced a national identity crisis in the 1970s, and President Ronald Reagan led us out of it with a landslide election in 1980. We can do it again in 2024. We don't have to be a nation in an inevitable decline. We don't have to be a Rome or a Carthage. It starts with our schools where parents must fight back against the indoctrination that says being an American is something to apologize for and that hard work isn't worthwhile. Like American teenagers, our nation itself is just a little young. We are going through our version of adolescence, still figuring out who we really are. We just need to start believing in ourselves again. Once we do, an American revival awaits ahead. I'm giving a lot of talks right now worrying about our 250th anniversary coming up in 2026, three years from now. Imagine what you think that will be like. Please let there be a Republican president when that happens. I worry what it will look like without one. I worry what it would look like with Joe Biden as president or Gavin Newsom or Kamala Harris. Is there any other Democrat they're talking about who might be a candidate for president? I don't think so. That's about the bench, isn't it? Elizabeth Warren's making noises again. Whatever happened to Cory Booker? Whatever happened to Cory Booker? He ran for president, too. This is a country that makes a man famous and can't wait to see him become forgotten as Chesterton wrote in What He Found in America, a great book. If you're looking for a great book about what America is, Tocqueville is, of course, from the outsider's view, the one most people point to. But you could do worse with uh, than uh, G.K. Chesterton's book. G.K. Chesterton's G.K. Chesterton's book, What I Saw in America, from 1920 to just a little less than a hundred years later. He opens his book with that very point about equality and America making people famous and then not being able to wait to make them forgotten. Some people should be forgotten. Some some people should be monuments to what to never do again. Some people should be monuments in how not to behave. Some people should be seen as instructions on how not to behave, not how to act, not what to do. 
you were listening a little bit to the story about Anthony Fauci in the New York Times. He'd be a good example of that monument. A lot of fellow Americans would be, actually. All right. Um, anyway, Vivek Ramaswamy's piece, it's a good piece. And I'm glad he's out there talking about this. It's hard to talk about a cultural issue and a cultural war and a presidential campaign. But if there's one thing that I hope that we're beginning to appreciate, perhaps more than anything else in our politics, I know we've given a lot of lip service to it over the years. The site to Andrew Breitbart that Andrew Breitbart that culture is um, that politics is downstream from culture. Sorry, politics is downstream from culture. Before he said that, twenty years prior, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, "Culture is more important than politics." They're making the same point, and yet it seems that people don't want to talk about it in political races unless they're running for school board. But look at what those people who are running for school board are doing especially if you look at their races in Arizona, pretty instructive. They're getting a higher percentage of the vote than candidates for other offices. Why is that? Why those ladies in Scottsdale who we supported so much, why did they get 15% more voter turnout than candidates for statewide office or even congressional office or legislative office? So they talked about the things that are most important. They talked about the things that are most important to parents. What I worry about, and this is a big worry from the Wall Street Journal poll, it's a big worry, is how much we care about children anymore. Not just having them, but keeping them protected and safe. seems we care about an awful lot of other things, most of them to make adults feel better. That's a point of my monologue, too. That's a bad thing to do. We'll be right back. Folks, despite what you hear from the Biden administration about the economy, what are the polls saying? And who do you believe? We got banks failing, the market volatile, possible recession coming. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed, where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you do need your money back at any time? where your interest is compounded daily and you're paid monthly and there are no fees. It's a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% interest rate. Talk to my friends at Y-Refi, local. You can visit with them. I know them well, honest and trustworthy, and you won't get a sales pitch. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and as I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return, fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. I was mentioning uh, this notion that is eminently true from Vivek Ramaswamy, Vivek Ramaswamy, and this deficit of people wanting to join the military. That's certainly one part of it, what he said, which is what I said yesterday. Why would you want to sign up to defend a country you think sucks? But there's another thing going on, too, a pretty tough column by Kurt Schlichter. We just um, we just keep asking people to sign up for the military to, define the, to defend the United States, but 
As Kurt writes, that's not what the military's primary occupation appears to be anymore. Let's review. We just had a former admiral and current Biden Baghdad Bob Smarmy State Department, Spur- Department spokesperson John Kirby announced that a core part of the United States foreign policy is LBGTQ plus rights. That's a core part. You know, not a lot of normal people particularly want to suffer and bleed for that blue coastal fetish Kurt writes. Maybe they do in the rich liberal neighborhoods where Kirby's folks live. Actually, they are happy for your kids to suffer and bleed for it, not their own. Oh, and you know what else is a strategic priority, Kurt writes? The weather. Who is up to enlist in service of it not being slightly hotter in 200 years? And don't forget Ukraine. Yeah, I know. Promise we are just advising and we'll never get sucked into a war in the Mekong Delta or the Donbass. Combine all that with the fact that we aren't even allowed to protect our border from illegal aliens and drug smugglers who are killing over 70,000 Americans a year with fentanyl. 70,000 Americans a year with fentanyl, that's right, and a total of 107,000 when you combine other drugs. And by the way, folks, as I think is important to point out, that's an undercount. Those are just poisonings or what a lot of people refer to as overdoses. That's not ancillary deaths resultant from drugs. It's not the crime. That's not the accidents. It's not the suicides. It's not the self-harm people engage in and end up dying as a result of their drug-addled states. Kurt writes, our national interest seems to be anything but protecting our own people. Young folks have noticed, and they're not signing on that line, which has dotted our military, which not coincidentally has failed to unequivocally win a war in 30 years, did what it always does when it faces a problem, makes the problem worse by hiring contractors to help solve it. They hired people to go out and poll young people to find out why young people were not willing to commit Their lives to the hands of people whose gross incompetence and total corruption have been on display for the last several decades. And here's the surprise. You're going to be shocked. The the answer was exactly what the brass wanted it to be, exculpatory. Turns out the answer the contractors delivered is nothing that challenges the ruling class's established prejudices or preferences. No, the answer is that American kids are too fat and too sick and mostly too scared to man up and die in the service of our ruling caste fantasies. No change or reform required by our military. What a relief and how convenient and how disgraceful. It's the kid's problem. It's the kid's problem. Here's what's missing from the polls, Kurt writes. The reality. Even in the past, the vast majority of Americans can't or don't want to serve. They have their reasons. Mostly the reason is that it's hard and you can make more money doing much easier things out on the outside. Service is not for everyone or even most. So really, when you poll about recruiting, you should be polling just the target audience, the segment of people who might actually think about ever joining the military to find out why those select folks now refuse to. And a big reason might be that our ruling caste believes, as the military teaches, that these select folks are bad people. The majority of potential recruits are traditional and conservative rural kids, some poor, some suburban, mostly looking to serve their country maybe make some money for college and have a life adventure. That's the reality. And a huge number of them are family members of vets since the military has become a family business in America. So it's these people you should be polling if you want to find out why these people aren't showing up anymore. And here's what you won't find in the poll results. You won't find any reports of potential recruits' concerns about incompetent military leadership. Kabul, anyone? 
That part about not winning a war in 30 years, that's important. I was there the last time we won a war, he writes. I highly recommend it. It's much preferable to these long conflicts with disgraceful exits under the leadership of those metal-bedecked losers in the Pentagon. Nobody wants to be part of a losing team, but that's what we are right now. You flag officers can tell each other we are still the most lethal, powerful fighting force ever, but you'll be watching the Chinese laugh. The potential recruits, he writes, are particularly disgusted by the gross betrayal of our soldiers over COVID. These idiots threw out thousands of dedicated military personnel because they wouldn't take an unproven vaccine that actually doesn't stop transmission and doesn't prevent you from getting the disease in the first place. They were lied to by the generals and admirals and betrayed by the generals and admirals. And now the generals and admirals are scratching their heads, wondering why young people won't commit their lives to their care. I haven't even seen Kurt talk about what Admiral Milley, excuse me, General Milley, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, testified to before Congress, saying that he reads Mao and Marx and Lenin to understand the American people never heard of such a statement from a public official reading communist theology and philosophy to understand America, much less a general, much less the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He retires later this year. It can't come soon enough, but I worry that his replacement could be worse. Why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? We have a real problem with the defense of this nation, folks, not just militarily, but morally. And it's probably the biggest problem we face. We talk about all the little ancillary retail problems. That's our wholesale problem. As I go to break, let me put in a word on behalf of the Midas Gold Group. With so many cracks showing up in the banking system and over $31 trillion in U.S. debt, just printing more money is no answer. It's what places like Argentina, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe all did, and that's when the defaults then happened. But gold has never defaulted, and veteran-owned Midas Gold Group will reinforce your portfolio. Call them to look into safeguarding your money with the stability of gold from the only precious metals dealer I and Seb Gorka and thousands of you already trust. That's the Midas Gold Group. Because gold traditionally does hold its value when economies fail. You look at the bank, Silicon Signature, Credit Suisse. Midas Gold believes we are in the early stages of a growing crisis, and the Fed's higher interest rates are your cue to create your own bank with real money, gold. Check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com. Or better yet, call them at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Midas Gold Group. Gold you can hold, your vault of confidence. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It is a delight, privilege, and honor to have with us Attorney Mike Bailey. He is the former United States Attorney for the District of Arizona. He is a partner with the law firm of Tully and Bailey and was one of the lead attorneys on the case we broke to you uh, as it uh, was handed down yesterday, the case of several property owners and residents in the city of Phoenix suing the city of Phoenix to help cure this uh, dramatically awful, horrible uh, chronic homelessness problem in what is the zone. Uh, We had uh, Mr. Uh, Bailey's uh, partner, uh, Professor Werman, on the week before talking about the case And as I say, it was decided yesterday on behalf of the plaintiffs and against the city of Phoenix. Well done, Mr. Bailey. Congratulations. Thank you for being with us, sir. Well, thank you, Seth, and thank you for having me. And uh, yes, you're right. We're very pleased uh, that the court was able to see through 
all the smoke the city was putting up in this case and, and found what's obvious to everyone, which is that there was a, a nuisance condition on the streets down downtown Phoenix. People, the uh, legal term of art, nuisance, people uh, maybe not uh, trained in law hear the word nuisance and they think, you know, a fly is bothering them or, you know, is spoiling a picnic. When we talk about a public nuisance um, in the case at hand here, for example, we're talking about uh, a virtual dystopia, aren't we, Mike? Well, a- absolutely. And to meet the legal standard, you really, really uh, need to show that the conditions are, you know, uh, oppressive for those who are rightfully in the area. And that certainly fits the bill in this case. And the court went through the long list of conditions uh, that sadly have developed down there in in what we call the zone uh, over the past few years especially. Mike, talk to me a little bit about why the city was so hesitant to do anything. Part of it was probably will. Part of it was relying on a legal precedent was relying on a legal precedent that you argued they were misreading and the court agreed with you on, right? That's right. They really had two legal defenses. Yes, sir. Uh, forward in the case. One was the Ninth Circuit case. And we know, I'm sure you've talked enough about the Ninth Circuit on your on your show to know that some, uh, let's say, different rulings come out of the Ninth Circuit from time to time. This case arose originally in the city of Boise, Idaho, and, uh, you know, basically in in what, in my view, I think was a stretch. The Ninth Circuit concluded that it's an Eighth Amendment violation to prosecute someone for violating the public camping laws uh, by sleeping in public, you know, essentially to forbid people from sleeping in public. And that in and of itself kind of opened a floodgate. And you see all around the western United States, it was a result of the city of Boise ruling uh, where all these homeless encampments uh, grew up in recent times. Unfortunately, the city of Boise declined to appeal that case to the Supreme Court. And that's one of the frustrating things when you don't get to be the plaintiff and you don't get to take it up to the Supreme Court to try and get it overturned. So the city of Boise, you know, giving in at some point after the Ninth Circuit led to the entire western United States uh, having homeless encampments. So the second thing the city the city said in defense is essentially, the, uh, dear, dear court, dear judge, we are the policymakers, which is true, and you have no right to tell us how to handle a problem. And the judge's response to that was, uh, well, you're right. I don't have a right to tell you exactly how to handle it, but I have a right to tell you to handle it. In other words, uh, whatever you do, you can't do nothing. So that answered half of your your question, I yep. think. The other half is complex, and is what what is the city's motivation in in you know managing that area the way they have and. Perhaps we can get into that, but that I think goes more to wanting to, you know, find a utopian solution that will forever end homelessness, which, uh, you know, is a panacea. Of course, we've had had these issues with us, uh, you know, forever in yeah. a sense.
Yeah, let me let me let me get back to that part of it when we come back on the other side of this break, Mr. Bailey, if I can. This was a short segment. We'll have a longer one coming right up. But yes, as you argued and as the court found, uh, the city's inaction, uh, their indolence, their faulty relying on the Boise decision allowed for not just what most people would think of as a nuisance in an annoying sense, but uh, an inhabitable place, a breeding place, as I'm reading the opinion, for insects and rodents, a breeding place for human excretions and garbage and organic waste deposited and discharged. Basically, for anyone who's been there, a place that looks like a bombed-out war zone in somewhere like Darfur, Sudan, right here in downtown Phoenix. Thankfully, your lawsuit prevailed, and the city's going to have to do something about it. We'll pick up on that when we come right back. Mike Bailey is our guest, former United States attorney for the District of Arizona and a partner with Tully and Bailey, prevailed against uh, in a lawsuit he was uh, representing the plaintiffs on, prevailed in a monumentally important uh, uh, case that was decided yesterday on behalf of the residents of the city of Phoenix and against the governance of the city, the government, the government of the city of Phoenix. It was also a victory for Kennedy, Mike, and a victory for, uh, I think, common sense. The notion that the city could stand uh, arms akimbo as they were watching all kinds of not only self-harm among this population take place, but harm against and within that population. I like to point out, or I think it's important to point out, that a lot of the violence that takes place the primary the primary victims of those violence are the other homeless people there and of course that 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 wasn't just contained to a few city blocks people who have been in the area noticed that it was growing and growing and growing ever outwardly expanding that something had to be done and one of the things that i thought was creative lawyering on your part was you proposed a couple of solutions too would you like to talk to the audience about some of the stuff you have uh, some of the things proposals you you folks made to the city that the city doesn't have to stand there idle right uh, and we simply pointed out that there are intermediate steps that that would allow the city to comply with that ninth circuit case uh martin v boise uh and yet would would both give the homeless uh, shelter, albeit temporary, and would also create enough shelter space that the, the city would be allowed to enforce the ordinance uh, about, you know, public camping, essentially, for those that remained. And that's really, you know, at the core of the issue is, a large number of people in the zone, we don't know how many, are what they call service resistant. They don't want drug treatment. They don't want mental health treatment. They want to live their lives as they see fit. And I'm sure nobody, of course, I should say, nobody wants to be homeless or living in a tent where it's very dangerous in these same conditions we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. But if you gave them the choice, uh, unfortunately, many of them would choose to stay right where they are rather than go into a shelter that would not allow them to bring drugs in or other items of personal interest, uh, pets and that kind of thing. And, and the city uh, basically uh, took that and took that reality and made the conclusion that the only way we're going to solve this problem is with permanent housing. And so focus their efforts on a final, uh, you know, answer to housing, 
as opposed to these intermediate steps that would be able to deal with it. And all that comes along with that is that you have a place where, uh, you know, the laws aren't enforced in large part. And not surprisingly, people are attracted to that place. And so the area has continued to grow with people who, you know, beyond our comprehension, certainly, are, are choosing to live there in some cases. And again, it's not a choice that they'd rather not have a home than have a home. Yeah. But with some of the restrictions that might come with a shelter, they're choosing to remain outside. The um, the uh, newspaper, Arizona Republic Online at least, has a story saying judge orders removal of tents from Phoenix's largest homeless encampment. Uh, will will tent removal commence, or will it start more with of more from a perspective of law enforcement, or perhaps even fire abatement? <laughs> I've seen arson down there as well. Uh, will it start sure. with just enforcing common sense uh, assault and battery laws? Well, uh, the first question in my mind is what what will the city's response be to yeah. the court order? Yeah, will they? to comply or try to comply, in which case we talk about one set of, uh, you know, one one course that the thing might take. Yeah. Or do they appeal? Do they go back to the federal court to ask the federal court to give them different instructions that preclude them from applying so that you have competing courts? It's unclear still at this point exactly how the city will respond. But the first thing, you know, if they were to try to comply would be that uh, they would instruct People, at least during the daytime, you know, when it's not sleeping at night, like we've talked about, Mm -hmm. that you can't leave your tent up during the day. Mm -hmm. And if you don't move it, there are, you know, public order laws that can be enforced, Mm -hmm. whether that's disorderly conduct, uh, along with, you know, the other full spectrum of laws that we we don't see evidence of enforcement on. Mike, you, uh, as I mentioned in your biography, I could spend a whole segment doing your biography. As I briefly mentioned, you're a former U.S. attorney. You've also been a deputy attorney general for this state. This this situation up until, shall we say, 4 p.m. yesterday, this 3 p.m. yesterday, this situation must have been tremendously frustrating to law enforcement itself, too. They, the, At least the law enforcement officers I spoke to in the community felt that their hands were being tied and, you know, nothing frustrates an officer more than seeing a crime they can't do something about. I I don't know if that was your sense as well. Sure. I think that's exactly right. The the officer on on the ground actually doing the patrol uh, surely had opportunities to enforce the law and a desire to enforce the law. And uh, whether there was a written policy or unwritten policy, um, you know, the simple fact is that if, if you were to arrest people for public illicit drug use or possession or for uh, public indecency of one kind or another, either just, you know, going through the human functions or sexual indecency, uh, a number of the, the the residents of that area would have been taken to jail. Yeah. But the city is, is again, choosing, they consider the, the enforcement of laws in the criminal system to be counterproductive in the long run mm-hmm. at what they call solving or ending homelessness. And so it's a policy choice, and it's a policy choice not being made, I'm sure, directly by the police. It's being made yeah. by 
the powers that be. Right. So do we expect to see a fairly rapid, shall we say, redressing of what's going on down there, a cleanup of what's going on down there? Or do you think that the city of Phoenix is going to try and, well, you had mentioned possibly going to federal court on this. Uh, I don't want you to have to (laughs) unveil your own litigation strategy, but do you expect a rather rapid uh, difference? Well, if they if they choose to comply with the court order without further litigation, absolutely, we would expect to see change immediately. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, again, I think many of, of the service resistant individuals that are living down there now would self select out if certain laws started started to be enforced, or if you weren't able to retain, yeah. you know, a, a campsite during the daytime. Uh, many people would find another place to go. Well, Mike, again, congratulations. This is a victory uh, not only for your plaintiffs, but really for civility and uh, for humanity here, because what is going on down there is the opposite of civility and humanity. So, again, really, I know it's a busy day for you. Thank you for taking some time with us, and thank you for your hard-fought and hard-won victory here, sir, for, for, uh, for all of us and for shall I say, the residents in the zone, too. Well, thank thank you, Seth. And if I can quickly add, uh, to be very clear, uh, you know, the lawyers and our clients yeah. want people to, you know, live in good conditions and have, have help. Uh, it just can't be done like this. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Treating humans as humans is what you won a victory for, Mr. Bailey. Thank you, sir. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. That Mike Bailey, he's worth his weight in gold. What a great public servant and now in the private sector doing the service of the public. I say that. Uh, he's kind of like Hugh Hallman that way. Hugh Hallman is coming up uh, now in the private sector doing so much great for the public good. I say that because it was back in – I'm just picking this up uh, now – November of this past year where I had an op-ed in the um, – in the Arizona Republic on the zone uh, with Steve Twist, our, our our other good buddy. We're all we're all really good friends here, and this notion that the city of Phoenix government entities, your taxpayer dollars at work, allowing this festering and growing problem to not only exist but to expand, um, is the opposite, really the opposite of humanity. And when you think about the kinds of things you expect of your local government. Yeah, sure. Uh, Potholes. Yeah, sure. Garbage collection. uh, Yeah, sure. Safe and workable streets. And yeah, sure. uh, Supporting, obviously, um, crime free, uh, crime free community. The exact opposite of all of that is what has been transpiring in the zone for too long now. I uh, used to after I went and toured it a couple of times, I used to tell people um, when I gave talks on it, that they probably shouldn't go visit it on their own, that I would take them um, in my urban assault vehicle uh, to see what was going on there. But to describe it as a war zone is not hyperbole. Um, and anyone who has been there says that's exactly what it does look like. And allowing living, allowing people in our community or any community in the United States or any community that calls itself just, 
allowing people to live like that is inhumane. It's simply inhumane, where the first victims of this awful policy of the city of Phoenix are the people living there themselves. They are its first victims. The growing community into which it was going to be spreading centrifugally, centrifugally, with like a centrifuge, <laughs> um, would be the secondary victims. But uh, thank God uh, that this uh, case was won by uh, by uh, Mike uh, Mike Bailey and his team because it may be the first corrective in a series of other municipalities as well to a badly decided case out of the city of Boise that has led to way too much indolence and excuse-making by city officials whose first job, yes, is the protection of its citizens. You know, we suffer from a lot of bad policymakers in leadership right now, particularly if they come from parties that we didn't vote for or disagree with. Um, thank God there's a legal system that works because we may end up over the next several years having to litigate our way out of some of these, if not a lot of these awfully bad policies we are going to have to suffer through or otherwise would. Okay. Thank you again. I am Seth Leibson. Hugh Hallman, another great uh, public servant in the private sector now joining us when we come right back.